0: Okay, if you have a Bible, John's Gospel, chapter 4 today. I know you're not used to this, John rather than Mark, but John's Gospel, chapter 4. We've got some folks who are going to read to you this morning. So Mark and Marissa. So John 4.
1: John 4, 3. Um, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had give, gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him,
2: Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you, Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman left, then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Thank you, guys.
0: Father, I'm thankful that I don't stand before a crowd to be feared or an audience to entertain, but today a family to love. And Jesus, this is a story that I believe you can express so much of your love and care for our church through. And so I pray that you'd bring it to life in Jesus' name. Amen. And we've wrapped up our little mini-series on marriage, and I realized that for us to discuss those things about marriage, and divorce, and even to touch on singleness, I realized that what that has the the tendency to do, or the capacity at least for many people, is to really animate uh, some deep wounds and disappointment that you've had to walk through in life. And so rather than just shifting gears quickly and moving on from that little mini-series, I decided that I'd just take the time this morning to share with you, this is one of my favorite stories, and to share the story with you, because I believe that uh, this kind of puts a bow on that little mini series, where we can now talk about Jesus' beautiful and gracious care, especially for people who are weary or brokenhearted. And so, next week we'll kick off a little series about Christmas that'll take us up into uh, Christmas time, and then as we roll into the new year, we'll jump back into Mark's Gospel. But we'll, we'll have a gap of time before we're back there. Now, our story that we just read together it really il- it illustrates something for all of us, and it's really the the deep unmet desire that resides in the heart of every person and it's a story that I just want to look at you briefly with uh, from three different angles so three different perspectives that I think will give us three different forms of application but together those three different vantage points I believe really paint a beautiful portrait of the heart of God for us so hang with me stick with me so that the first thing we'll look at is humanities, search for love But the second thing then we'll talk about is my choice to love humanity because of the great love that i experience in jesus and then we'll talk about jesus we'll close by talking about jesus ability to turn a pit into a reservoir but first humanity's search for love that's the first thing that i see here Uh, the interaction that you read here in john's gospel is super unique it's something that john decides to record in his gospel it seems because of how unlikely and surprising this real encounter that Jesus has, how surprising and unlikely it is. For a Jewish rabbi in this culture to do something like this is really shocking, to be talking alone with a Samaritan woman who seems at first glance to us to have a bit of a checkered past. It's a surprise, and so John records the story for us. So allow me to tell you a little bit about the woman as we get rolling and start talking about humanity's search for love. I want you to know about this woman three different things very quickly. The first is that her religion itself was against her because she's a Samaritan. Her religion was against her. She had a lot of things stacked against her, and the first was even just her religion. In 2 Kings, it tells you the story of the Assyrians coming in and driving the inhabitants of the Jewish people who lived in the region of Samaria driving those inhabitants out of the land and then placing a hodgepodge of different people groups from other regions outside the nation of Israel there inside the region of Samaria. And then as some Jews began to repopulate the area there, they even began to intermarry. There was even assigned to them a priest who would institute their own form of worship. And so it becomes this cultural and religious smorgasbord of Jew and Gentiles blending together, but unfortunately beginning to distort what God had instructed the people of God to do. And so there was a divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles, a divide even between Jews and those who would reoccupy Samaria, but that divide all of a sudden began to grow into intense and nasty hatred because of the intermarrying and distortion of the Jewish faith that was taking place in Samaria. Samaritans, you should know, historians are really clear with us that they maintained uh, Jewish religious ceremonies and laws. In fact, they embraced the first five books of the Old Testament. You can even find ancient manuscript copies of some of these texts there in Samaria. But because of the divide that now existed between them and the rest of the Jewish nation, what they did in those ancient texts is they wrote out of the text the significance of Mount Moriah, which was not in the region of Samaria, It was in Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah is the place that Abraham took Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice, you might remember. It was also the resting place of the temple. They wrote that out of the text and replaced instead a different mountain, a mountain of Samaria called Gerizim. You notice the banter here between the woman and Jesus when she says, our fa- your fathers say that it's on that mountain, our fathers say it's on this mountain. She's referencing the thing that historians and even the ancient manuscripts itself tell us about the divide that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now that divide and tension escalated to the point That slightly before the time of Jesus, according to apocryphal writings that we still have preserved for us, the Jews went and destroyed that temple atop Mount Gerizim. Just wiped it out. Now their, their uh, sacrifices, their worship continued on the side of the mountain, but without a temple. But the Samaritans' way of responding was they broke into the temple mount on the night before Passover and dragged a bunch of dead people's bones, their bodies, and threw them into the temple, thus defi- defiling the temple on the eve of the holiest of days of worship in the land of Israel. So there's real animosity that exists and not just, uh, it's, it's so much deeper than just distrust or dislike. The Jews the Jews, purposefully separated themselves from the Samaritans and began then to mark them as their bitter enemies because of the way that they believed that these people defiled God's precious people. Now, Samaritans were considered in ancient culture, and you get this even from ancient documents, to be, and I quote, irremably without remedy, impure. Impure. The idea is they were impure without remedy. To come in contact then with the Samaritan became the reason to believe that you were now ceremonially unclean. And so their cities were avoided at all costs. Now, Jesus is in the region of Galilee. The quickest route to Jerusalem would have taken you right through the land of Samaria. It's the most direct route, but really is the least likely route for a man like Jesus, a rabbi to take. But it's clear that Jesus chose this route purposefully. In fact, in verse 4, did you catch that he even communicated that we needed to go this direction? That Jesus was on a mission, not just to get to Jerusalem, but I would argue to get to the side of this well, where he will rest and wait for this woman to come to draw water. You need to know about this woman that when she arrived, that her religion itself was against her. Yes, she believed in the God of the Jews and was trusting in these ancient writings of the first five books of the Old Testament, but the Jews themselves condemned her. It wasn't just that, it wasn't just her religion, it was her culture as well that, that also condemned her and was against her, because she was a woman, viewed as inferior to men, often treated more as a possession than as an image bearer, something we've been talking about in our marriage series Remember, male and female, both he created in the image of God. Both in the image of God, he created them. Out of man, God created Eve. That doesn't mean less than. It means of the same substance. It means intrinsically valuable. And yet that was not the culture of the day. And some will tell you that that's still the the way that the Christian message is presented, and that's still the impact of the Christian message. Modern people still argue this, that it's suppressive and backwards. It's regressive and suppresses. Women, But look at even Jesus in this story, and it begs to differ. Because look at what Jesus does that's so countercultural to go and seek this woman out and the kind of exchange that he has with her. In fact, as provocative and scandalous as it was for Jesus to reach out and touch a leper or to call a tax collector to follow him, this was just as shocking and scandalous for him to be sitting and speaking alone with a Samaritan woman. In fact, historians tell us some rabbis wouldn't even speak to their own wives in public. It was an undignified thing, they said. But to speak to this woman, a woman like her, says a lot about Jesus and about the heart of God for people. Her religion was against her, her culture was against her, but also her own community seemed to be against her as well. It seems like it's because she moved from relationship to relationship. John's careful to give the detail that the woman came along to the well at the sixth hour. It's noon. The the clock would start in an ancient agrarian society. The clock would start at sunrise around 6 a.m. And so by noon, it's the peak heat of the day. And in that ancient agrarian culture, like she lived in, your workday started when the sun went up. When the sun went up, the men went out to the field in order to work the field and work under the light of the sun and maybe in peak heat moments in the middle of the day even take a break in the shade only to go back and work even harder again in the afternoon. That's what the men would do as the sun was coming up. But for the woman, as soon as the sun was rising, the woman would go together, not alone, but before the heat of the day had arrived, they'd go to a water source. They'd drag their young children with them. They'd go in a group. The, the neighborhood moms with the children would, would go out to the well, draw their water, and get home before it was too hot and go out in the company of other people for protection. But this woman, John's very careful to note the details that she's alone and the detail that it's the middle of the day, the peak heat. And we don't know anything other than that that that's the fact. That's what we find in the story. We don't know if it's because she's told by other people in the community that she was unwanted or if she was just too uncomfortable to, to join with them and to be with them all. All we know here is, is that it seems like she doesn't fit or belong for whatever reason, an internal reason or an external reason. There are other people are telling her that because she's isolated and alone, and what she's doing for the first century audience would have instantly caught their eye and their ear. A woman alone in the middle of the day going out to do this is an odd thing. It tells you here, gives you a hint as to why she's doing it, That she's been through five marriages, and the relationship she's in now, the man she's living with, isn't even someone she's married to. Her checkered past would have created some social boundaries where others in her own community would have ostracized her. She's a social outcast who's being shunned by other women in the community. Even today, some commentators who write about this passage use terms like, and I quote, a serial fornicator. That's the shade that they throw her direction. Now, for many reasons, this woman would have been despised by most of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, a Samaritan, a woman who has this questionable reputation, and yet, Jesus is seen there, seemingly waiting for her to arrive. And the request that Jesus makes seems to genuinely surprise the lady. It was unheard of for for a Jewish person of that time to ask for a favor, much less For a drink from a Samaritan's cup. The disciples, when they show up, they're also surprised and even speechless. It says they don't even know what to ask him. They're just in silence looking on. This is jaw-dropping, this moment, this interaction. And don't get lost in the little banter that takes place here. Between Jesus and this woman regarding thirst and water. Because Jesus asks for a drink, she's speechless that he'd, he'd take water from her because he's a Jew and she is a Samaritan and he would be defiled if he drank from her cup. But then Jesus tells her, if you really knew who I truly am, well then you'd ask me for a drink and I would give you living water, he said. Now, in ancient times, spring water was typically referred to as living water because it seemed alive, because it was bubbling up out of the ground and had constant movement to it. And so at first glance, it can almost seem like like Jesus is telling this woman about a nearby active spring that no one's discovered yet. I'll show you, I'll give you living water. You don't have to come back here anymore. But Jesus' use of this term, it's kind of used, picture it like a lasso that Jesus throws out there to draw this woman in, to grab her attention so he could talk to her about quenching a deeper thirst that existed inside of her, a deeper thirst than thirst itself. You see, Jesus knew that this woman and everyone in the village had come daily to satisfy their natural thirst. And Jesus used thirst then as a picture of a deeper need and longing that every person has. People are thirsty, all of us. We have wants and and things that we long for, that we search for, that we reach for. But Jesus is saying that only what he gives satisfies the deepest levels of man's soul and spirit. And I bet I don't have to convince you that this is true. I don't need to set out to convince you. It's Your life experiences have already proven it to be true, that you can seek for something, you can chase after something, but when you finally get something, it doesn't meet the thirst. It doesn't quench the thirst that drove you towards it. There are famous celebrities that I could quote to you who talk about, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous just so that they could see that it's not the answer. That's Jim Carrey. It's DeMar DeRozan, a couple of years ago, an NBA star, who went to Twitter, took to Twitter to talk about how depressed he was and suicidal he was, and when people shot back at him and all the backlash he got for, how could you get online and complain about these things? Because you look at you, you're living all of our dream. He said, well, I wish you could fulfill your dream and see how empty it is, like I'm seeing. This is what the world is telling us, and this is what our own experiences told us, where we thought of the thing, If I just get that thing, whether that's a promotion or an item or a set of keys to a certain kind of car or moving into a certain kind of, if I can just, well, then I'll never need anything again for the rest of my life. And then that thing or goal is replaced by a new thing or a new goal because it never satisfies what we had hoped it would or what it promised to us it would satisfy. And so you thirst again. But Jesus speaks to us in moments like that and says, if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. It'll be like a well just springing up inside of you, like this unending source of life internal. A life-giving resource that doesn't run out is what he's saying. And so Jesus then says to the woman, well, we'll go and call your husband and come back here. In the moment, some would say, maybe this seems a little odd the request that Jesus is making. Maybe maybe it's because his, his public conversation with this woman has kind of already strained the boundaries of the culture that Jesus would be talking with her, and so he's like, okay, this has been awkward enough. Now go get your husband, bring him back here, then we can chat some more. That's what some people suggest. Others say, well, maybe this woman thinks Jesus is going to tell her where this unknown uh, fresh spring of water is located, and that woman couldn't purchase the land because she's a woman in that culture. So go get your husband. I'll tell you where it is, and then he can purchase it for you. That's what some would assume. Or may I suggest that this is Jesus' way of pointing out to her, this is why you're here in the heat of the day. This is why I'm saying to you, you need to drink from another source that can satisfy you. Because you've been through five broken marriages. And now you're in another mess of a situation. Jesus uses that question to bring to the surface the undeniable reality that her life had left her empty. Dissatisfied. Still thirsting for more. Still chasing, though, after that which could not satisfy her. And she responds, you you chuckled as it was read to you. She responds a bit tripped out and probably trembling a bit. In verse 19, where she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers say that we should worship on this mountain, while you Jews say that there in Jerusalem is where we ought to go to worship. Maybe this wasn't an evasive move. Maybe this wasn't her all of a sudden like, oh, wow, I feel caught. When he calls out, you've been with all of these men and the men you're with now. The man, you're, you're not even married to him. Maybe this isn't just an evasive move to get out, uh, uh, to, to, to deflect the attention that she's receiving. Maybe, just maybe, it was simply her way of, her way of asking, well, where do I find God? Because you say it's there, our father say it's here. Clearly she hasn't found what she's looking for, though. And Jesus tells her that things have changed. It's no longer a question of location, it's a question of relationship. Jesus then reveals himself to her as the one who can change that, who's changed all of it, that it doesn't matter where you are or who you are, that you can connect with him because he reveals who he truly is. I'm the Messiah who's come and who will change everything. Think about the lady here with me, this woman. Something's causing her to to bounce from relationship to relationship. There's something... She hasn't found that she's yet to experience. Her thirst for love is yet to be quenched. Now hear me, the search for more or the idea that more will, will ever be enough is wrong because more never equates to enough. More never equates to enough, especially when it comes to a search for love. But in our story, I want you to know that I don't believe that this woman was just a morally loose person or as some would refer to her, a perpetual adulterer shattering one marriage after the next. I read this story, and that's not actually what I think. According to Jewish laws and customs in the first century, a woman could neither initiate nor terminate a marriage. Now, she wasn't a Jew, I realize that, but she was a Samaritan who followed the first five books of the Old Testament. And if those are the laws that shaped the culture of the land, and historians and archaeologists are pulling out of the dirt those ancient laws and expectations, she could neither initiate nor terminate a marriage. The point I'm trying to make is that I think we aren't to read this story and assume that she's in this situation purely because of her own choices or her own lack of purity. Now, Yes, of course, her choice to live with a man she's not married to, it's rebellious towards God, it's destructive to herself, and I'd even argue it's destructive to her community. It's sinful, it's wrong, make no mistakes, there's no excuses for it. It's something we still see in our modern setting, our modern culture. It's something new authors are beginning to give new terms for. They call it sexual atheism, where so many people who name the name of Jesus in the 21st century are saying, Jesus, you're Lord of my life, except when it comes to my sexuality and my sexual expression, because only I am master of that universe, and only I know what I need to do to make me happy. And so Jesus be Lord of my life over here, but not here, so it's referred to now as sexual atheism. Because when it comes to my sexuality, I don't believe that there's a God who ought to or gets to reside or preside over that aspect of my life. But you know that if Jesus isn't Lord overall, then the old saying is he's not Lord at all. And even in this woman's life, that's true. But if the law did not permit her to end her previous marriages, well, then what could have brought them to an end? She may have been forced to bury her husband's. It could have been just due to illness or war or any other thing. Historians talk about how during this era, many men died in their 30s, whether through illness or going to war. And so is it possible that she gets married, maybe she's as young as 14, and her first husband dies, maybe from illness, and then a second husband goes off to war? The Jewish law would command that if her first husband were to die and not leave her with a son who could then go into the workforce and work to provide for if she didn't have children, well, then his family would need to adopt her into their own home by the next brother-in-line marrying her. What if she's buried some of those husbands? What if also she's barren and divorced by other husbands because she's not providing them with an offspring? For her inability to provide for them really the one thing then they were wanting from her, because if her first husband has died and then the next ones are obligated to take her, and when they take her, they're just waiting for an offspring because then that person can be responsible for her, but she's not even able to provide that. And so the certificate of divorce is produced again, and again, and again, and what if this six guy is looking at her and saying, I'm not going to marry you unless until you can prove to me that you can even get pregnant? What if the reason she's at the well in the heat of the day is that at least when she goes in the heat of the day, she can go alone? What if it's because it's too painful for her to see the other wives in the community with a jar on their heads and a nursing baby resting against their chest. What if now she's living with the man, and yes, it's wrong that she's doing it, but she needs to eat. And yes, he's telling her, hey, listen, before I put a ring on it, you need to demonstrate that you can finally produce what you need to produce. You need to get pregnant. And until that time, you're not worthy to be wife. What if that's what's driven her in the heat of the day to walk there alone? What if, in our story, this woman, in the peak heat of the day, she's doing this because at least when she's alone, she's not having to hear an insult or even just feel the disappointment that comes from hearing a giggle of a child? Where the disappointment she has, the hurt she has, is so real that she instead chooses, in the middle of the day, I'll just go and, and... Bear with it, deal with it through the heat of the day. Notice in the story that Jesus revealed her sin not to publicly expose and humiliate her. He revealed her sin so he could then reveal himself as the Savior that she needed. Not just to forgive her, but to rescue her from the deep pit of her own despair. You see, I think the story, it illustrates for us humanity's search for love, that she's longing for someone, for something to tell her that she's worthy of love, that she's worth loving. But the second thing I'd throw out there for you to consider, another way to look at this story, is that there's a choice here, my choice, and a challenge to me to love humanity. Yet yeah, it illustrates humanity's search for love, but it also leaves us with a challenge to love on Humanity. Because for us, we have a capacity and the tendency to assume the worst, whereas Scripture tells us in Corinthians that love will believe the best. I think this story kind of illustrates that about us. Jesus taught us not just to love our neighbor, but he also commanded us that we ought to love our enemies. And we have this broken, messy, sinful, and destructive tendency inside of ourselves to look at other people and judge them on this shallow surface observation that we make. We pass judgment based on the little that we think that we know about them. Take this woman in her story as an example of that, where nowhere in this story does it tell us that she was adulterous or unfaithful in any of those five marriages. It's very possible that who Jesus met at the well was not so much a morally loose woman chasing love and romance as much as she was a broken down and deeply wounded, isolated girl in need of love and acceptance. I think searching for love really is a search to be loved. Or What we're looking for when we're looking for love is really someone who looks our direction and says, I see you and I see something worth loving in you. It's Keller, who I've quoted to you often, who says, the greatest desire of humanity is to be loved. But to be loved and not known is shallow. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is what Jesus uniquely can give to us, and it is completely what our heart yearns for. And this is precisely, I think, what we see in this story, is that Jesus exposes to her, I see you in every broken, hard, difficult, sinful, destructive thing about you. And yet I'm here with you. See, the encounter she has with Jesus is so amazing, so incredible, in fact, that she runs back into the village. Verse 29, did you catch what she said? She said, come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. She's telling you that although the whole village knew her story, hear me on this, only Jesus seemed to know the whole of the story. The whole village, everyone knew her story, but only one person, Jesus, seemed to know the whole of it. Seemed to understand the, the entirety of her story. Jesus saw beneath the failures of her past. He saw the wounds that left her isolated. He stepped into the brokly, broken and lonely world she existed in and offered her something that could finally satisfy the deep longing that she had. He told me everything I ever did. Now, there's no way that Jesus spent the afternoon with her like, let's start at birth. Your parents... Ron and Martha, they met at this old park and and then worked his way through from birth to early adolescence to middle school, high school, whatever, all the way into adulthood to the day of, of her standing there before him. There's no way that that's what Jesus did by telling her all that I ever did. It's not that he just retold the facts of every event in her life. It's she's communicating that Jesus reached into the deepest and truest parts of her that he pinpointed her greatest desires that he unearthed her deepest wound in that moment, that he touched a part of her heart that she had suppressed and hidden from others. Her isolation, her hurt, her brokenness. Jesus pinpointed the deep motivation beneath the surface that animated everything that she seemed to do. And so she said of Jesus, this is the man who just opened all of that up. He's told me everything I've ever done. And what animated it all is a search for love and acceptance, to be seen and loved, to be accepted, uh, to be known and accepted. We must, the story illustrates for us a, a challenge and a command that we must learn to see people this way. To look beneath the surface, to not just be frustrated at the action or disappointed or push on people judgmentally to drive them away because of the destructive decisions they make or the messy situations they find themselves in. But to look beneath the surface and say, well, what has animated all of this brokenness in your life? What's driving you into these, these destructive patterns and decisions in your life? To have enough compassion to be willing to enter into their own shoes, to have empathy with them. To not be dismissive, but to be loving and embrace them. This is what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus incarnated. He was embodied with flesh. That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, is that God left heaven, took on human flesh. And he didn't just do it once, did he? He did it again and again. He took on human flesh again and again when he would enter someone else's shoes. It's what we've marveled at in Mark's gospel where Jesus would groan within himself. He'd sigh deeply when he was interfacing with uh, someone who was deeply hurt that he'd feel what they felt in that moment. In Philippians, the same passage that tells us this is what Jesus has done for us. It says, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in you. That this is the way we're meant to interact with our world. That there's a challenge in this story that you and I are, are to be like Jesus, not just standing back and being judgmental and pushing people away because of the destruction or mess that's at work in their lives, but for us to lean in close to embrace them and love them and look beneath the surface for what's the brokenness that's present in your life that my Jesus with his living water can satisfy and heal once and for all. Oh, he told me everything I ever did. The woman was amazed not only that Jesus knew the facts of her life, but that he loved her even when he knew the facts of her life. We sometimes fear that if someone knew all that I ever did, they could not love us, but look at the way that Jesus loved this woman. The story illustrates humanity's search for love. The story challenges me to love humanity, but here's the third thing and the final thing, and then we'll transition to a time of worship. That's this, the third thing is it? it demonstrates for me Jesus' ability to turn my pit into a reservoir. The story, I think, speaks to me that Jesus can turn my pit into a reservoir. Remember, Jesus in this story, he reveals her sin not to publicly expose and humiliate her. He revealed her sin so that he could reveal himself then as the Savior that she needed. He revealed her brokenness so that he could sit with her in it and offer living water to wash and fill and transform it. If the woman isn't just this selfish mess that many maybe have labeled her as, then this story is a reminder that Jesus comes to sit with broken people because he can pour life back into what's broken and empty inside of them. Let me preach to some of you. This is how we'll wrap up. Some of you, this will not land with because you'll say, my life is great and I don't know what you're talking about. But some of you, you've, you've lived enough life to feel like you can identify with a person like that. So I want to speak to you because I know some of you and I, I know some of your stories because you've been courageous to share different aspects of your story. There's tremendous loss that's represented in our church. There's hurt and disappointment. There, there's, there's been, much like this woman potentially had in her story, barrenness even, a longing for children without them arriving. There's been betrayal and broken relationships in our community. There's been physical health and mental and emotional help that's been deeply damaged, that some of you have had to walk through difficult seasons. There's been, for some of you, manipulation and abuse that's a part of your story, or, or deep depression and anxiety even, and I don't know half of your stories. I don't know all the deep pain that you have felt. But what the story here tells me is that Jesus sits weary next to me in those moments. Remember, he's God enough to heal and save me, and yet Jesus is human enough to understand me. He sits weary with you. He suffers with you, Scripture says. It literally means he sympathizes. Or in Scripture, in Hebrews 4, it says he sympathizes with your every weakness. It literally means he suffers with you. He has experienced betrayal. He knows what loss is like. He's been through pain. He too has laid on a floor and cried and cried and cried and cried. Remember Gethsemane. He, too, in that place, in that garden, he had prayers that were not answered in the way or the time that he had hoped. He knows these things. He, too, has laid there and said, I'm sorrowful unto death. It's what some of us have heard come out of our mouths when we lay down at night and have said in seasons, God, I don't want to take my life, but I really don't want to wake up again tomorrow. I'm sorrowful enough that, that I'm despairing of life itself. I'm ready to be done here. Jesus sits with you next to that pit, leaning up against that wound, present with you in your sorrow, because sorrow is so isolating. I think this is one of the worst aspects of, of suffering and sorrow. It's so isolating because as the world continues to turn and people's lives move on, you and I, when we're hurting, we feel stuck and frozen in time. It's so very isolating. And for many of you, it's because maybe no one knows even what you're going through. Or for others, you feel like although people know, their world just keeps moving when yours is frozen and stuck in time. But the story tells me, I think, that Jesus can turn, and I mean this with all sincerity, turn a pit into a reservoir. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because that's my own story. That Jesus has taken my pit and turned it into a reservoir. That Jesus found me sitting by a deep, dark, awful, godless place. That he saw me in a moment of emptiness and brokenness. In fact, three years ago, this time of year, this week, three years ago, I had cashed out all the vacation I had in order to uh, get away from work because I was so depleted and so deeply depressed that I, I. the last time I had cried three years ago, the time before that I had cried was the night I asked Lindsay to marry me. I got down on a knee, it's pathetic. Got down on a knee, started to tell her I loved her, lost it. Not like a couple cute tears, good snot sob. Fast forward 12 years, my depression hit so deep, I sobbed like a child every day for three months. I'd walk into a restroom to use the restroom and stand over a urinal, snot sob. I could not keep myself composed. I was so deeply broken, so overwhelmed, felt so isolated. I felt like no one could sit with me and understand what I felt, and Jesus began to take the pit and turn it into a reservoir. Jesus showed up in a moment like that. Overwhelmed with depression and sorrow, feeling like I can't do this again tomorrow, praying at night, I don't want to take my life, but Jesus, I don't want to live again. I just want this to not feel this way. When Jesus found me, He found a broken person, isolated and alone. And then he showed up with living water that could transform all of that. He found more than just an empty void or a deep wound. He found something that he could pour life-giving living water into that then I could draw from. So that now for me, as he poured life-giving water into my heart again and began to heal my heart and my mind again and make me whole again, it made it so that I could draw on something, so that I could know him more deeply and so that I could now dispense what he gave to me to others. I could dispense the love and the joy and the peace and the hope that he gave in the midst of the brokenness. But if we're to do that, if Jesus is to do this in our lives, turn a pit into a reservoir, we cannot slide the lid back over it when we see him approaching. We have to be willing to, in vulnerability, allow the brokenness of our lives to be exposed so then Jesus can begin to pour living water into it. And for those who have walked that journey, you're now rich with a currency that everyone wants but no one wants to earn. You've suffered and had God heal you. You've suffered and have him give you peace and be the prince of peace in your life. You've suffered and been comforted and found hope in him. And so you are now rich with a currency that everyone needs, but no one wants to earn, and you are now able to dispense the beauty and power of that currency into the lives of other people around you. Listen, what if God is less interested in just healing and completely removing all of our hurts than he is in leaving and using some of those wounds that exist inside of us? That's not exploitation. Because I've, I've come to believe that some of those wounds that remain in my life have begun to give me more than they cost me. And I'm like Jacob, who after he wrestled with God, it says that through till the end of his days, he leaned upon a cane when he walked. Every step was painful. He walked with a limp, but every step was a reminder that the promises of God were faithful and real. Because when he stopped and said, you're giving me descendants, you're giving me a nation, you're sending Messiah through me, there's no way. And then he took the next step and as his hip gave out, it was a reminder, it's real. It began to give him more than it cost him. It's Paul the Apostle saying three different times you prayed for my thorn in the flesh and many believe that that was some sort of a physical ailment that he dealt with and as they prayed for him he finally said enough because his strength is being made perfect in my weakness. He told him you don't need to pray for me anymore. I don't need to be delivered and completely healed of this because God has given me through this something he otherwise would not or could not have given me. It's beginning to give me more than it's costing me. And I, for me as a person, I have insecurities and wounds that I wish Jesus would just show up and completely heal and remove. Instead, he's turned those isolating, deep, empty pits of pain in my own life into deep reservoirs that house the living water of his grace and love and comfort and hope that I can draw from maybe jesus wasn't in this story exposing her sins so that she could repent of it maybe he was exposing her her hurt in this moment so that he could sit with her in it so she would know that that he sees it so he then could begin to comfort and heal it are you sitting by a deep void today I mean, if all of us could see beneath the surface of your life, would we find that you feel isolated and broken, deeply broken? If that's you, then in this moment, don't slide the lid over top and cover it up again, the the lid and the cover over top of the wounds that Jesus shows up in a moment like today to sit next to. Because in our story, he saw her hurt, and he went and sat there and waited for her, and then gently revealed to her that he saw it and cared about it, and most importantly, that he had living water, a life-giving source to pour into that emptiness and void to transform it. May I remind you, God's love for this world did not diminish at the fall, nor was his love for this woman depleted by her sin or brokenness, and that he possesses that same kind of love for me, for you. He could offer living water to drink because Jesus would go to a cross and while suspended between heaven and earth, connecting God to man once and for all, he would cry out in thirst. Jesus could offer lasting satisfaction because he would make a way for you to reconnect with the source of all life and joy and love to connect with God himself by becoming our substitute and sacrifice in that moment. As I tell you often, he would ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus turns pits into reservoirs. Jesus meets broken people in their brokenness. And he shows up there to transform it, to reshape it, to breathe life into it. Father, thank you that this is what you do. And God, it could be for any reasons, not just the series that we've been through talking about relationships that have left people empty and broken, feeling like they sit by an empty void in their life. God, it it can be any number of things, not just those things. But God, I pray specifically for those who sit here today and are tempted in this moment to put the lid on all of that emptiness, that brokenness that exists in their lives. I pray instead, Jesus, that they'd let you sit with them in that moment and that we could be a part of your presence and your comfort and your grace and your love for them in this moment. Father, I thank you that this is not just her story, this is my story that you showed up in my life in such a powerful way and began to transform with living water, with a life-giving source, deep hurt and brokenness, the darkness of depression, and to transform that into hope and comfort and love again. I thank you that that you can give us more than these tragic, difficult, or, or painful seasons can cost us. I believe that, Jesus, and I thank you for it.